This morning we'll be in 2 Kings chapter 10. <clears throat> Again, we'll read the entirety of the chapter of 2 Kings 10, covering the rest of the life and reign, coming to power of Jehu, king of Israel. 2 Kings chapter 10. Before we read, let's pray together. God, you have not left us alone, but you have given us your word to teach us all things about you and to lead us into conviction and to bring us into comfort. We pray that you would give to each of us according to our needs. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 2 Kings 10, Now there were in Samaria seventy sons of the house of Ahab. So Jehu wrote letters and sent them to Samaria to the officials of Jezreel, to the elders and to the guardians of Ahab's children. He said, as soon as this letter reaches you, since your master's sons are with you and you have chariots and horses, a fortified city and weapons, choose the best and most worthy of your master's sons and set him on his father's throne. Then fight for your master's house. But they were terrified and said, if two kings could not resist him, how can we? So the palace administrator, the city governor, the elders, and the guardians sent this message to Jehu. We are your servants, and we will do anything you say. We will not appoint anyone as king. You do whatever you think best. Then Jehu wrote them a second letter saying, If you are on my side and will obey me, take the heads of your master's sons and come to me in Jezreel by this time tomorrow. Now the royal princes, seventy of them, were with the leading men of the city who were rearing them. When the letter arrived, these men took the princes and slaughtered all seventy of them. They put their heads in baskets and sent them to Jehu and Jezreel. When the messenger arrived, he told Jehu they have brought the heads of the princes. Then Jehu ordered, put them in two piles at the entrance of the city gate until morning. The next morning Jehu went out. He stood before all the people and said, You are innocent. It was I who conspired against my master and killed him. But who killed all these? Know then that not a word the Lord has spoken against the house of Ahab will fail. The Lord has done what he promised through his servant Elijah. So Jehu killed everyone in Jezreel who remained to the house of Ahab, as well as all his chief men, his close friends, and his priests, leaving him no survivor. Then Jehu set out and went toward Samaria. At Beth Eked of the shepherds, he met some relatives of Ahaziah, king of Judah, and asked, Who are you? They said, We are relatives of Ahaziah, and we have come down to greet the families of the king and the queen mother. Take them alive, he ordered. So they took them alive and slaughtered them by the well of Beth Eked, forty-two men. He left no survivor. After he left there, he came upon Jehonadab, son of Rechab, who was on his way to meet him. Jehu greeted him and said, Are you in accord with me as I am with you? I am, Jehonadab answered. If so, said Jehu, give me your hand. So he did, and Jehu helped him up into the chariot. Jehu said, Come with me and see my zeal for the Lord. Then he had him ride along in his chariot. When Jehu came to Samaria, he killed all who were left there of Ahab's family. He destroyed them according to the word of the Lord spoken to Elijah. Then Jehu brought all the people together and said to them, Ahab served Baal a little, Jehu will serve him much. 
Now summon all the prophets of Baal, all his ministers, and all his priests. See that no one is missing because I am going to hold a great sacrifice for Baal. Anyone who fails to come will no longer live. But Jehu was acting deceptively in order to destroy the ministers of Baal. Jehu said, call an assembly in honor of Baal. So they proclaimed it. Then he sent, message, then he sent word throughout Israel and all the ministers of Baal came. Not one stayed away. They crowded into the temple of Baal until it was full from one end to the other. And Jehu said to the keeper of the wardrobe, bring robes for all the ministers of Baal. So he brought out robes for them. Then Jehu and Jehonadab, son of Rechab, went into the temple of Baal. Jehu said to the ministers of Baal, Look around and see that no servants of the Lord are here with you, only ministers of Baal. So they went in to make sacrifices and burnt offerings. Now Jehu had posted 80 men outside with this warning. If one of you lets any of the men I am placing in your hands escape, it will be your life for his life. As soon as Jehu had finished making the burnt offering, he ordered the guards and officers, Go in and kill them. Let no one escape. So they cut them down with the sword. The guards and officers threw the bodies out and then entered the inner shrine of the temple of Baal. They brought the sacred stone out of the temple of Baal and burned it. They demolished the sacred stone of Baal and tore down the temple of Baal. And people have used it for a latrine to this day. So Jehu destroyed Baal worship in Israel. However, he did not turn away from the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, which he had caused Israel to commit, the worship of the golden calves at Bethel and Dan. The Lord said to Jehu, Because you have done well in accomplishing what is right in my eyes and have done to the house of Ahab all I had in mind to do, your descendants will sit on the throne of Israel to the fourth generation. Yet Jehu was not careful to keep the law of the Lord, the God of Israel, with all his heart. He did not turn away from the sins of Jeroboam, which he had caused Israel to commit. In those days, the Lord began to reduce the size of Israel. Hazel overpowered the Israelites throughout their territory east of the Jordan and all the land of Gilead, the region of Gad, Reuben, and Manasseh, from Aror by the Arnon Gorge through Gilead to Bashan. As for the other events of Jehu's reign, all he did and all his achievements, are they not written in the book of the annals of the kings of Israel? Jehu rested with his fathers and was buried in Samaria. And Jehoahaz, his son, succeeded him as king. The time that Jehu reigned over Israel and Samaria was 28 years. Jehu was the, the first and the last of the good kings of Israel. And here we pick up the story after Jehu, God's anointed king, after Jehu has killed King Ahaziah of Judah, King Joram of Israel, and the queen mother Jezebel. And like a, a divinely appointed hitman, now he goes off to finish the job. And having trampled Jezebel under his feet in Jezreel, now Jehu sends a letter off to Samaria. Samaria is the capital city of the nation of Israel. And he, he sends this letter off to the leaders of the city. And there he says, Take, take the best of your master's sons. Ahab has 70 sons. It doesn't mean sons like Caleb or Andrew are my sons. It just means male descendants, potential heirs to the throne. Take the, take the best of the possible heirs to Ahab's throne. Set him on the throne and make him king. Then take your weapons, your chariots, and come out and fight. We'll see who's the better man. 
and the winner will be king. But he's just killed two kings. So the people inside the city know that this is not going to go well for them, and so they send a letter back. They say, no, 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 you're, you're the king. We'll do whatever you want. But Jehu isn't quite ready to buy it yet. You see, he sends another letter, and he says, take your master's sons. See, he still calls Ahab their master. He still thinks that's where their loyalty lies. Take your master's sons and deliver their heads to me by the next morning. Now, why this? Why do this? Because Ahab's, all of his male descendants would have claim to the throne. By eliminating all of them, now he becomes the king, and there are no other legitimate kings left in Israel. And so they deliver the heads to Jezreel, and, and Jehu has them piled up in two piles, and Jehu is king. And this all happens exactly as the Lord had said it was going to back in 1 Kings 21. 21, when he had spoken to Elijah. And more than that, Jehu knows that this is what the Lord has done. Go look at verse 10 again. It says, Know then that not a word the Lord has spoken against the house of Ahab will fail. The Lord has done what he promised through his servant Elijah. So Jehu knows that he is not king because of Jehu. Jehu knows that he is king because of God, and so he recalls the word of God, and he quotes the word of God, and he gives credit to God where God is due credit. Jehu has what looks like a good beginning. And then we, we move on, and Jehu takes off for Samaria. He goes to claim the throne of Israel for himself. And along the way, he meets some family members of Ahaziah. Ahaziah is the king of Judah, which Jehu had killed when he was together with Joram, the king of Israel, whom Jehu also killed. Jehu kills a lot of people, if you haven't noticed. There's a lot of dead bodies in the wake of Jehu. And he says, who are you? And they say, well, we're family members of Ahaziah. They don't know that Ahaziah is dead and that Jehu has made himself king. They think that this will garner them respect. And instead, Jehu has them taken and has them put to death as well. Wrong place, wrong time, wrong friends. Never make friends with Baal worshippers. That's the message of 2 Kings 9 and 10. But then it's almost like the author needs you to know that Jehu actually is capable of making friends. And so he runs into Jehonadab, the son of Rechab. And Jehonadab is a bit of a mysterious figure in the Scriptures. We don't really know a whole lot about Jehonadab. What we know mostly comes from Jeremiah 35. And in Jeremiah 35, we see that Jehonadab is an ascetic. That means that Jehonadab was a minimalist before being a minimalist was cool. He, he told his family members that you aren't allowed to own homes, plant fields, plant vineyards, drink wine. You're to be nomads. You're to go from here to there and here to there, kind of like the Israelites did in the wilderness. But the most important thing about Jehonadab and his family and those around him is that Jehonadab was a zealous man for the Lord. Jehonadab loved the Lord. And he was a powerful man in the Lord. And so what we see here is that when Jehu whisks Jehonadab up into his chariot, Jehu secures what we might call in today's political discourse the support of the conservative evangelical coalition, sort of like our president has done. He, he, whisks, he whisks Jehonadab up into his chariot, and he's gained some support. There's, a lot, of, there's a, a lot of comparisons between Jehu and our current president, but that's probably left for having a conversation over a cup of coffee sometime and so here we, we see that now Jehonadab and Jehu go riding off to Samaria. 
And when he reaches Samaria, he wipes out all the rest of Ahab's family. And this again is according to the word of the Lord. Now some people will say, though this was a very wicked thing to do, but it seems that verse 17 does not think so. Jehu is an instrument in God's hand, an instrument of judgment. He's carried out his God-given duty to bring God's vengeance on God's enemies, and he's done a rather effective job of it. But that's only half the, that's only half the battle. See, Ahab wasn't bad just because he was bad. Now, he, he was bad. That's part of it. But Ahab was bad because he brought Baal worship into Israel. And for decades now, the faithful worshipers of God have been under the oppressive thumb of the militant Baal cult, largely led by Queen Jezebel, who was a very nasty woman. And so now, Jehu goes to put an end to the Baal cult. And we read that as we come into verses 18 to 28, we see that Jehu is cunning, even rather conniving. And he comes into the capital city, and the first thing he does is he gathers all the people together, and he says, the Lord is God. No, that's not what he says, right? He says, Ahab worshipped Baal a little. Jehu will worship him much. In other words, there's a new sheriff in town, but the policy is going to be the same. Ahab looked, like, Ahab looked like he was faithful to Baal. My great, my great faithfulness to Baal will make Ahab look as though he was unfaithful to Baal. And so he gathers all the, all the priests of Baal together. In fact, he says, if you don't come together, you're going to die. What's the irony? The irony is that if they come together, they're going to die. They'd have been better off staying at home. But he, he, brings, he brings them together into Samaria to make this great grand sacrifice and as you come into this it looks like everything is going wrong because Jehu had just told Jehonadab come look see my zeal for the Lord but the first thing he does when he gets into Samaria is he says I'm zealous for Baal but the author lets us in on the secret as we see that he was bringing them in simply to destroy them and so he brings them in and and then he has them clothed in vestments very clever a priest is very easy to identify when he's dressed in his vestments, and if they're identifiable, they're able to be killed. And so he has them all together, and they have this sacrifice, and Jehu oversees it. And as soon as the sacrifice is done, Jehu sends in his crack troops, and they, they destroy everybody. They destroy all the priests of Baal. They take the sacred stone of Baal, the most holy relic, they probably superheated it so that it cracked into pieces, and they desecrated it. And just to make a mockery of Baal, they tear down Baal's temple, and Jehu has it turned into a public porta potty. You know, Baal had dominated Israel for decades, and he had done a very good job of dominating Israel. As good a job as a false god can do, I suppose. You remember, you go back to 1 Kings. And Elijah wins his favorite victory, or his, his famous victory, over the prophets of Baal at Mount Carmel. And there the fire of the Lord comes down, the people go, and they slaughter the prophets of Baal. And you think, oh, this is, this is great news, but it, it doesn't seem so great because Elijah, what's the very next thing Elijah does? Elijah runs off to the wilderness, sits under a broom tree, and says, Lord, please kill me, I'm the only one left who loves you. Whether Elijah knew that he was exaggerating or not is really beside the point. He felt desperate. He felt as though he was the only one left who hadn't bowed the knee to Baal. And the Lord tells him, that, Elijah, you're exaggerating. I have reserved 
7,000 people who have not bowed the knee to Baal. That might sound really encouraging, right? 7,000. That's that's a great number, except when you think about it, what is 7,000 people and an entire nation of people? Right? Baal has gained the allegiance of everybody in the entire country with the exception of only 7,000 persons. Baal was a dominant force, but no more. Now Baal's, now Baal's king and Baal's queen are dead. And Baal's prophets are dead. What Elijah started, now Jehu finishes And that final verse is a bit of an understatement, that final verse. So Jehu destroyed Baal worship in Israel. After 17 chapters of dominance by the satanic cult of Baal, finally the people of God are free. And you see that the author wants you to see this because 17 times in just those 11 verses, the name of Baal comes up again and again and again and again. And then Baal is dead. And so, if you're a, a faithful Israelite, you have to imagine that if you're, if you're walking down the streets of Samaria, and if you can stand the stench and you walk past the site where Baal's temple had been, when you see that it's become a, a public dump site, so to speak, you imagine that the faithful Israelites would have raised their hands and said, finally. You must think Jehu was wildly popular with those who loved the Lord. And just think of all that Jehu had done. I mean, what a guy. He, he wins victories. He sets God's people free. He gets rid of idolatry. He tears down and makes a mockery of pagan temples. I mean, what more could you want from a king? You can, you can hear the faithful Israelites saying, three cheers for Jehu. Hip, hip. But the Scripture says, wait. Just a minute. Hold on. What do we see as we read in the next verses? Go, go, into me, go in with me to verses 29 and 31. We'll start in verse 28. So Jehu destroyed Baal worship in Israel. However, he did not turn away from the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, which he had caused Israel to commit, the worship of the golden calves at Bethel and Dan. The Lord said to Jehu, Because you have done well in accomplishing what is right, in my eyes, and have done to the house of Ahab all I had in mind to do. Your descendants will sit on the throne of Israel to the fourth generation. Yet, or but, Jehu was not careful to keep the law of the Lord, the God of Israel, with all his heart. He did not turn away from the sins of Jeroboam, which he had caused Israel to commit. There's a pattern in these verses. Verse 28 commends commends Jehu. Verse 29, condemns Jehu. Verse 30, commends Jehu. But verse 31, condemns Jehu. Maybe Jehu wasn't so much a good king as he was a better king. I mean, Jehu is the best king Israel has had, and spoiler alert, he's going to be the best king that Israel will ever have. But he's not a good king. He's better than Omri, he's better than Ahab, he's better than Joram, he's better than his sons, but he's not good. Because he doesn't love the Lord. Jehu's obedience came out of a desire for Jehu. Jehu wanted to be king. Jehu was jealous and was zealous 
for himself being king, but he was not zealous for the Lord. It was very convenient that the Lord wanted Ahab's family dead, and the Lord wanted Baal's prophets dead, because Jehu needed Baal's prophets dead and Ahab's family dead to be king. And so he follows the word of the Lord to that point, but when it, when it becomes inconvenient, when it stops becoming politically expedient, then we see what Jehu's heart was really made of. That his conversion was not a conversion of conscience, but it was a conversion of convenience. He gets rid of Baal, and that's good. But he doesn't get rid of idolatry. And it shows where his heart is. And then it's no surprise, as you read those final verses, it's no surprise that judgment continues to come on Israel. Hazael, the king of Syria, comes and begins to tear Israel apart at the seams, taking off chunks at a time. Judgment always follows idolatry. Jehu should haunt us. I'm convinced that Jehu should haunt us. Jehu did all the right things. Jehu quoted the word of God. He followed God's instructions. He destroyed idols. He was zealous. He partnered with the faithful people of God. He was anointed by a prophet of the Lord. Jehu seemed to be everything you could have hoped to have in a king. But Jehu didn't love God. We can speak anachronistically. That means we read today's terms into the past. We could say that, that Jehu was a king uh, and a Christian of convenience. He was a Christian in name only. He did the right things. He said the right things. He was with the right people, but he wasn't right with God. Ah, I'm a graduate of Reformed Theological Seminary. Pastor John is a graduate of Westminster Theological Seminary. They're both good seminaries. I have a preference, and so does he, and they're not the same preference. But my, my seminary ha has a motto, and the motto is, a mind for truth and a heart for God. We can say that Jehu had a mind for truth, but he did not have a heart for God. Je Jehu was ever ready to quote the prophet Elijah. He knew the word of God, and he was ready to speak the word of God from his lips, but he didn't have a heart for God. Things are not always as they appear, and as I've been reading lately about preaching, I've, I was reminded of one of the cardinal rules of preaching one of the cardinal rules of preaching is that you do not assume everybody in front of you is a Christian. You do not assume that everyone in front of you is converted. And I have been a pastor long enough and have seen enough things to know that it's true, and almost certainly true even today, that not everybody standing or sitting in front of me, listening to the ministry of the Word, loves God. Jehu desired the things of God but he did not desire God. Do you desire God? Do you love God? I came across a, a helpful poem this week. The poem comes from Mr. Rogers, of Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood, and it's not about God, but I think it helps cut to the point that we should get out of the life and, and reign of Jehu. The poem goes like this. It's you I like. It's not the things you wear. It's not the way you do your hair. 
but it's you I like. The way you are right now, the way down deep inside you, not the things that hide you, not your toys, they're just beside you. But it's you I like. Every part of you, your skin, your eyes, your feelings, whether old or new, I hope that you'll remember, even when you're feeling blue, that it's you I like. It's you yourself. It's you. It's you I like. It needs to be God that we like. God himself. Not his toys, not his things. It needs to be him we like. It needs to be God we love. And so oftentimes we turn to the the Psalms to have permission to feel. And sometimes we turn to the Psalms to be told what we should feel. And so I I assume that many of you are familiar with Psalm 84 verse 10 because there's a a song about it that's rather popular. And Psalm 84 verse 10 says this, For a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. And we may may say, yes! A day in heaven is better than a thousand days elsewhere. And that's true. But that's not what the psalmist is talking about, at least not in the immediate context. You see, the psalmist in Psalm 84 is a man who's been left behind. All of his friends, all of his family, his community, they have all gone up to Jerusalem to the temple to worship God together in public worship. And for some reason, he's been, as as Presbyterians, we can say, providentially hindered from attending. And he's distraught that he is left behind and he is not able to worship God with God's people. And so he says, a thousand days elsewhere feasting or working in the fields or doing whatever, a thousand days elsewhere are not as good as one day in your temple with your people worshiping you. See, the psalmist isn't half-hearted like Jehu. Jehu was in it for Jehu. The psalmist is in it for God. The psalmist isn't interested in crowns or being king. The psalmist is interested in delighting in and loving God as his king. And there is something profoundly wrong with us when we cannot resonate with the psalmist's passion. There are so many things that we would choose over God. Just to go back to the example of Psalm 84, there are so many things that so many of us would choose over the worship of God. Cabins, lakes, ball games, sleep, Sleep for crying out loud. Sometimes we would choose sleep over worship. And I wonder if the author of Psalm 84, if he could see what the American church looks like in our lack of desire for worship, I wonder what he would say, especially when he knew that we already knew the Christ that he longed to see. There's something profoundly wrong with us when we habitually desire other things more than we desire God. Martin Lloyd-Jones said it this way, there is something seriously wrong spiritually with anyone who claims to be a Christian who does not desire to have all that can be obtained from the ministry of the church. It's about 
our desire. It's about our heart. See, Jehu had everything going right on the outside. He followed, he knew, he was with the right people, he did these things. God even commends him for what he does, gives him a reward for what he does. But on the inside, Jehu's heart wasn't right. And the root of that, and the very first fruit of that, is that Jehu didn't worship God. His heart wasn't right. There's any number of ways to apply this, I think, and examples one could use. You could speak of prayer or scripture or anything, but at the risk of offending you, I think I might find the one that will offend the most of you, and I apologize, but not really. I'm sure I've offended most of you before, and it will probably happen again, and that's part of preaching, and you can send me your angry letters later if you would like, but don't waste your time. I don't think it will matter too much because it comes from the Word. Think about perhaps... Evening worship. Some of you shuddered right there. Because some people are more passionate about not going to church at night than they are about going to church in the morning. Isn't that incredible? Now, now I, I don't want you to hear what I'm not saying. Okay? I don't want you to hear that I'm saying, if you're a Christian, you have to go to church at night or anything like that. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying it's about our hearts. I, I, once, I once had a man say to me, I used to do that. He was talking about going to church on the Lord's Day to worship the Lord at night. And I used to, but I don't have to do that anymore. Well, I guess that's true, right? We're, we're not going to say that anybody has to go to church at night to go to heaven. That's not true, nor would we add to the law and say such a thing. But is it, is it a matter of have to? Right? Is, it a matter of, is it a matter of function, or is it a matter of the heart? That you don't have to, but what is the desire? I hear other things, well, it's old-fashioned or it's legalistic. I suppose it is old-fashioned. You go to Psalm 134, verse 1, and it says, Come, bless the Lord, all you servants of the Lord, who stand by night in the house of the Lord. Now, admittedly, Psalm 134 is probably about 3,000 years old. That's about as old-fashioned as it gets. But what do you see? You see people worshiping God in the evening and delighting in God in the evening. And I hope that we don't just throw away everything that's old. We throw away the entire Christian faith and a good number of you as well. And is it legalistic? No, it's, it's not legalism. You don't have to be here to go to heaven. It, it, it's, it's, not a, it's not a matter of law. It's a matter of heart. It's not, the question isn't, do I have to be here? The question is, why don't I want to be in worship? Whether it be morning, evening, whatever. Why don't I want? You go back to the early church. Right for Pentecost. Where do you find the, where do you find the people of God every day, daily? You find them in the temple. Daily. What were they doing? They were singing, and they were listening to the teaching of the apostles. You go to the Reformation, and you have guys like Martin Luther and John Calvin, and they preached two, three times on Sunday, and every day in between. And if one of them was sick, they'd have a different guy who would preach. And the chapels, the cathedrals were full because the people had a hunger for the Word of God. What has happened that our taste buds for worship have grown so numb that for some of us, 75 minutes of worship and not a whole lot in between is enough for us. 
Sometimes I get the feeling that 75 minutes is too much. Sometimes it seems that some of you come just to go. And my home church, my home church had a nice sanctuary. I don't think it was quite as nice as this, but it was a nice sanctuary. But there was one glaring flaw. There was a clock. And it was right there. And to make it worse, it faced the congregation. And I remember as a, as a child, I stared at that clock. And I watched those painful minutes tick by. And minutes never ticked by any slower than there except in science class. And I would just watch. And I would wait. And I would stare at that. Kind of like some of you stare at your phones. I can see you. you. When you're going like this, there's two options. You're looking at your phone or you're sleeping. Neither of which is good. And I would watch, and I would wait, and I would wait, and I would think about how I would be able to go play ball in the yard or go and watch the Cubs game. I would, I would watch the clock. But you know what? I never check the clock. I never check the clock during a Cubs game. What an indictment on my own heart. Maybe sometimes it's good to be haunted by stories like Jehu. Because Jehu can in some ways be a mirror for us. Because Jehu's in the right place at the right time doing so many of the right things but with the wrong heart. Because Jehu was zealous for Jehu. He was not zealous for God. I don't want you to think that I'm some kind of unholy scaremonger that just tries to say scary things. I don't think I say things that are half as scary as Jesus says. Jesus said this in Matthew 7. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven, on that day many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works, many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. You have two things Jesus is going to say to you at the end. Well done, good and faithful servant, or I never knew you. Depart from me. Jesus says there will be a lot of people who can say a lot of things about themselves that are going to hear the words, depart from me. You can about hear Jehu, can't you? Lord, Lord, did I not kill Joram and Jezebel? And Lord, Lord, didn't I exterminate Ahab's family? And Lord, Lord, didn't I, didn't I destroy all of Baal's priests? And Lord, Lord, didn't I, didn't I turn Baal's prophet into a portageon? And didn't I do everything you asked of me? And it's true, yes, but one thing he lacked. But he didn't love God. When it came time to worship, he didn't. He didn't worship. Instead, he was an idolater. You going to be okay, sweetie? I can handle other kids crying, but sometimes my own breaks my heart. Second Kings... 2 Kings 10 is a gut check for us. Do we love God? Not just the things of God. But do we love God with our hearts? Like Jehonadab. With a righteous zeal. Or do we just love the things of God? Like Jehu. And the thing about standing up here is that I can tell you what it says but I can't tell you what's in here for you. 
But it's a good thing to think about. What's in here? Because you're here. Two thumbs up. But what's in here? I can't tell you whether you need conviction or comfort. But we'll pray that whatever it is that you need, the Lord gives you. Let's pray.